Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Caroline. And I'm Kristen. Today's topic is one that has been requested by a lot of you listeners out there. It's a rather sensitive topic for a lot of women and their partners. Um, it's We're talking about miscarriages today. It's a it's a common health issue that a lot of people face, and we have never done anything just kind of giving you the 101 on miscarriages before. So today we thought we would talk about the whole issue. Yeah, and I think it's also important for us to talk about miscarriage, not just because so many women experience it, but because it's something that... We don't talk about very much, probably among ourselves, especially considering how common it is. Um, so we're just going to, yeah, walk through what it is and why it happens. More importantly, almost why it doesn't happen and the psychological repercussions. So first off, um, what is a miscarriage? Uh, this is coming from the National Institutes of Health. And uh, technically speaking, it's the spontaneous loss of a fetus before the 20th week of pregnancy uh, because pregnancy loss after the 20th week is actually called a preterm delivery. Right. And another term for miscarriage is spontaneous abortion and spontaneous being the key word. This refers to a naturally occurring event not anything to do with medical abortions or surgical abortions. And there are other terms for early loss of pregnancy, including what's termed a complete abortion, wherein all of the the tissue of conception leaves the body and there's incomplete, inevitable, infected and missed abortion. All of those different terms relate to how much of the tissue leaves the body, whether or not as a infected abortion implies, whether or not there was some kind of infection in the womb. Um, missed abortion, for instance, is when the pregnancy is lost, but the products of conception, as they're called, remain inside of the body. Right. And there's also this uh, term called threatened miscarriage. This is basically when the symptoms of miscarriage occur with or without vaginal bleeding, and half of threatened miscarriages do, in fact, end in pregnancy loss. And so the signs of miscarriage include things like cramping, bleeding, and lower back pain. And there was one column that I was reading in Slate by a woman named Sarah Shemkus, who was talking about how miscarriage is often portrayed on television as this one-time event, like where a woman goes to the bathroom and she sees blood and then it's over. And one thing that a lot of people might not realize is that this can be a process that can take, at least in Shemkiss's case, as long as a week to happen. Um, so, yeah, and that just is just kind of putting it out there to clarify how the process can can vary for different women. Right. And so we should take a look at the causes of miscarriage because contrary to, you know, there's a lot of misinformation, I feel like, around around things like this. Having sex, exercise, mild falls and most medications do not cause miscarriage. Again, Sex, exercise, mild falls, medications, not a cause of miscarriage. And a lot of times when it happens, there might be some guilt on the part of the mother and her partner um, thinking that there might be something wrong with their genes that cause this pregnancy loss. But in fact, most miscarriages are caused by chromosomal problems that essentially make it impossible for the baby to develop. But those problems are usually 
not related to mother's or father's genes. Right. And a common chromosomal issue that comes up is that the embryo or fetus has a chromosome that causes it to develop abnormally. And this is not usually a sign of a condition that could cause problems in future pregnancies because it usually happens by chance when the egg divides and grows. And this is actually a problem that causes at least half of miscarriages. And one thing that uh, medical scholars have been looking more closely at, too, in recent years is a correlation between miscarriage and partner's age, not the mother's age. Um, the frequency, for instance, of these kinds of chromosomal anomalies in spermatozoa appear to increase with male age. So, for instance, in 2004, there was a study published in American Journal of Epidemiology, which found that pregnancies by fathers 50 years or older carried twice the risk of miscarriage compared with pregnancies with younger fathers. And some other possible risk factors for miscarriage include things like drug and alcohol abuse during pregnancy, exposure to environmental toxins, hormone problems, infection, obesity, or on the flip side, being extremely underweight. Um, smoking and problems with the body's immune response. Yeah, and age can also be a factor for risk of miscarriage as well, as we talked about in our episode on why it's harder to get pregnant after 35, uh, because the risk of miscarriage is higher in women who uh, are older, and that risk starts to elevate after age 30, but it really escalates after 40. But no matter the age of the mother, miscarriage is most likely to happen early. In fact, most miscarriages occur during the first seven weeks of pregnancy. Eight out of ten miscarriages happen during the first three months of pregnancy. And second trimester miscarriages happen in just one to five percent of pregnancies. Yeah, kind of put another way, more than half of all pregnancies are spontaneously lost before a woman even knows she's pregnant, before she even misses a period. That's how common this happens. So in other words, women might have miscarriages and not even know it because they didn't even realize they were pregnant. Right. And, you know, as as horrifying as the experience of miscarriage is, typically, statistically, it is usually a one time occurrence. Most women who miscarry go on to have a healthy pregnancy after the miscarriage. However, there is a recovery period and people kind of debate how long this period should go on. You know, do you wait a long time? Do you try again immediately? Should you take, you know, basically mental health into consideration when you're doing that? And while it, of course, varies from person to person, the physical recovery from miscarriage in most cases takes only a few hours to a couple of days. Yeah, I mean, your periods will likely return within four to six weeks, and it is possible to become pregnant during the menstrual cycle immediately after a miscarriage. Now, that said, the World Health Organization recommends waiting at least six months before trying to conceive. That six-month uh, waiting period seems to be standard advice Although more recent studies are starting to call that into question because the WHO is is recommending that six month wait time based largely on maternal health in developing countries where medical care is less reliable and where women tend to get pregnant at earlier ages. Correct. Yeah. And the British Medical Journal actually says that women who conceive within six months of a miscarriage instead of waiting up to a year end up reducing their risk of another miscarriage by a third. And they also increase their chances of a healthy and successful pregnancy. 
But Julia Shelley, who's an associate professor at Deakin University in Burwood, Australia, wrote an editorial accompanying that British medical journal study, offering a little bit of a qualification, saying, quote, we cannot really tell whether pregnancies conceived very soon after a miscarriage really do have better outcomes or whether women and couples who conceive quickly following a miscarriage have better outcomes in subsequent pregnancy than couples who take longer to conceive. Right. And so, I mean, it, it kind of depends person to person. Yeah. Really on your own personal health and all of that stuff. I mean, if you're healthy and feel ready, doctors say there might not be a need to wait. Uh, you know, if you're if you're taking your prenatal vitamins or your folic acid supplements, you know, that that usually starts months before you even conceive, as long as you're maintaining a healthy weight, including physical activity uh, and eating a healthy diet and, of course, managing stress and avoiding alcohol, smoking, that sort of stuff. Yeah. And I would imagine, too, that that wait time might also depend on the type of miscarriage mm-hmm. that occurs, like we, we referenced at the top of the podcast of the, the various kinds that can happen. Um, but one thing, too, that we wanted to mention is the question of whether or not having a medical abortion, a voluntary abortion, in any way predisposes you to miscarriage, because I think that is a, a fairly common assumption. When I was just poking around on Google looking for solid data on this, there were a lot of uh, sort of inflammatory types of blog posts that immediately pop up saying that if you have an abortion, then you are risking, you know, uh, subsequent miscarriage or infertility. Um, however, the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists says, quote, there are no proven associations between induced abortion and subsequent ectopic pregnancy placenta previa or infertility. And one reason that uh, we some people have thought that miscar- that abortion might lead to miscarriage is because it's based on old data. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, abortion technology has improved and made it safer for the mother and left uh, the, the uterus and the cervix more intact. So there should not be uh, a greater risk of miscarriage. Right, exactly. And one risk factor that we didn't really touch on fully is the idea that women who have had previous miscarriages are at a greater risk of having future miscarriages. And yes, this is a definite risk factor, but it is it is small. Less than 5% of women have two consecutive miscarriages, and only 1% have three or more consecutive miscarriages. And this is coming from the Mayo Clinic. Uh, they write that after two consecutive miscarriages, there's a 75% chance the next pregnancy will be maintained. Now, somewhat counterintuitively, after three miscarriages, in fact, uh, that risk drops to 65%. But when looking for the, the reasons why someone might be experiencing recurrent miscarriages, but in cases of recurrent miscarriage, the, the big question mark often is why it's happening, because I believe this was reported on in the New York Times that in fewer than half of couples experiencing that will doctors pinpoint a definite cause. And the causes of recurrent miscarriage really tie back to miscarriage overall. Uh, the overwhelming majority of these recurrent miscarriages happen because of chromosomal abnormalities, which, as we already discussed, increase with the mother's age and with the father's age. There could be genetic errors in the egg or sperm that result in embryos with too many or too few chromosomes. But 
environmental factors are rarely linked to pregnancy loss, and there have been no associations between environmental factors and recurrent pregnancy loss established. There could also be an inherited disorder that raises a woman's risk of blood clots, um, also called thrombosis, that can increase the risk of fetal death in the second half of pregnancy as well. Mm. And if you experience multiple miscarriages, there there are tests that you can have when you go to your doctor. Things like blood tests, they can uh, evaluate it to detect problems with hormones or your immune system. Um, there are chromosomal tests that you and your partner uh, might both have your blood tested to determine if chromosomes can be a factor. Uh, if there is tissue from the miscarriage that's remaining, that can be tested. And these chromosomal analyses uh, can basically see if there's some inherited genetic cause that happens, and that's in less than 5% of couples. But, I mean, you know, talking about the immune system problems and the hormonal problems, like, you know, we mentioned in our thyroid episode that, you know, that is both, when you have something like Graves or Hashimoto's, that's both a hormone and a an immune disorder problem. So having those tests leading up to pregnancy, whether you've had miscarriages or not, is very important. Yeah. And and again, we want to underscore that on the bright side, about 60 to 70 percent of women with unexplained repeated miscarriages still go on to have healthy pregnancies. So even if you've had multiple miscarriages, it, it's certainly likely that you can still have a baby. So we talked about the physical repercussions of miscarriage, what what might be going on inside the body. But we also need to talk about how miscarriage can impact the mind and your emotional well-being, not just for mothers, but also for partners as well. So we're going to get into the psychology of pregnancy loss when we come right back from a quick break. And now back to the podcast. So we were talking a lot about the physical causes and effects of miscarriages, but one thing we have not talked about yet is the psychological effect, the burden that the mother and her partner feel when this tragedy has happened. And calling it a tragedy is, I mean, I feel like a lot of times when miscarriages are discussed, they're kind of brushed off. Anyone outside of the couple or the mother who is having the child, it's kind of, the attitude is like, Oh, well, you'll be okay. Just try, try again. Well, and especially if it's lost early in the pregnancy, too. Right. There seems to be kind of this general misunderstanding about the emotional toll that a miscarriage can take on a couple or a mother, however early it happens. Traditionally, it's kind of this private event. You know, I know a friend of mine had a miscarriage before she had her children, and I didn't even know about it. Mm -hmm. You know, it was once she was pregnant with her now two-year-old. That, you know, she said, oh, yeah, you know, early on I had this thing. And and it, it's almost as if a lot of moms feel like they're not allowed to be sad or they're not allowed to be sad in public. Yeah, but a new research suggests that some women might actually mourn for a lot longer than expected, which is, you know, part of why we wanted to, to talk about this issue to kind of open up these conversational lines for women to feel more comfortable talking about these experiences because it can last even after the birth of a healthy child, although, of course, the range and severity of the symptoms are, are going to vary. Right. And uh, Janet Jaffe, who's a clinical psychologist at the Center for Reproductive Psychology in San Diego, says that it's kind of the medical commonality of miscarriages that lead us to kind of brushing them off, to underestimate the impact that they can have on a family. Um, Jaffe says that it's a traumatic loss, not only of the pregnancy, but of a woman's sense of self and her hopes and her dreams of the future. 
She has lost her reproductive story and it needs to be grieved. Yeah, and uh, a woman who has a miscarriage is understandably at risk for symptoms of depression and anxiety, not just immediately following the miscarriage, but in, in the years to come. And even after having a healthy child, women who miscarry also have a higher risk of postpartum depression. And there is a paper published in the British Journal of Psychiatry in 2011 looking at this. And the researcher followed more than 13,000 women for three years post-birth. And of those who had miscarriages, there were about 2,800 of those women who had had a miscarriage, 15% experienced clinically significant depression and or anxiety during and after the pregnancies for up to those three years. And this can really affect women as they become mothers, as they bear healthy children. Um, a study looked at women who had delivered a child within 19 months after a miscarriage and found that 45% of the infants had disorganized attachments to their mothers, that it was still affecting them in the way that they viewed their healthy children. And not only can it take a toll on a mother's relationship with her children, but understandably, it can take a toll on her relationship with her partner. Um, there have been there's been research into how miscarriage can impact uh, sex life, for instance. And a lot of times you'll see in heterosexual relationships, men might be ready to move on and want to reignite that flame, whereas women might not be ready to have sex for a while. Yeah, exactly. And we should look at, at, at partners, both both male and female partners, when it comes to having a miscarriage, because traditionally the the feelings experienced by the partner tend to be dismissed, both within the family and without. And studies have shown that men are not satisfied with the support they get from others. Nonetheless, research also has shown that that men absolutely grieve these losses as well, but it might not be as intense or as enduring as their partners, which is understandable because it's not as much of a, a physical experience, perhaps, for them. Right. And a 1996 study in the Journal of Psychosomatic Research found that um, for both men and women in these situations, giving up their personal expectations, hopes for, and fantasies about the unborn child is a major source of grieving. Some men, on the other hand, feel burdened, particularly by their wives' grief or depressive reactions. I'm sure feeling helpless, not knowing what to do or say, they can't say anything right. Exactly. I mean, there's no way to to magically fix that situation. Um, and so you, you see sort of gender stereotypical differences emerging in these studies of how men tend to manage their grief compared to women. Uh, for instance, one study published in 1999 in the Journal of Reproductive and Infant Psychology found that men might display less what they call immediate active grief, but they might also be more vulnerable to feelings of despair and difficulty coping, probably because of a sense of helplessness. Right. And while studies have shown that no matter how advanced the pregnancy is, the woman will likely feel the same sense of loss. For men, the more advanced it is, the, the greater their sense of loss. The more it, it's almost like they're getting to know this little person from the ultrasound on 
whereas the woman's sense of grief is heightened either way. Yeah, and there have been similar studies on this conducted among lesbian couples as well, and it finds for the the non-pregnant lesbian partners similar feelings that uh, that husbands or boyfriends might experience in heterosexual relationships. Um, for instance, in one study that talked about how uh, often the response is, you know, a sense of having not only lost uh, the baby, but also kind of having lost, emotionally speaking, the partner not knowing how to sort of rebuild that connection. How do you move forward from that? Right. And researcher Danuta M. Wajner said that lesbian couples do face kind of a unique situation psychologically and emotionally in that there are going to be a lot of people who didn't approve of this union and this pregnancy in the first place. So there might even be a greater lack of support for them in this time. Well, and they might have to go to greater lengths as well to go about getting pregnant in the first place. Right. And and that even ties in with other studies that have shown that women who go through like fertility treatments or IVF or something like that, their grief tends to be extended past the point mm-hmm. of where other women are starting to move on. Yeah, and and I don't want to leave gay fathers out of the equation as well because I'm sure there can be a similar process, for instance, if you're you know hoping to adopt and that falls through. I mean, any time you're going to experience some kind of of loss of an expected child, we need to be able to to talk about it and to to grieve with them and for them and and allow that process to happen. So so the question would be then, you know, if you are the friend, what can you do if you find out that that someone you know has experienced a miscarriage? Well, grief expert Robbie Miller Kaplan stresses that a miscarriage is a death in the family. And just like any death the bereaved must grieve for the loved ones they have lost. And so she says, first, it's really important to acknowledge the loss that your friend has experienced. Yeah, she says uh, you should treat your friend just like you would treat a loved one who had, who's had a family member die. Send flowers, write a note, bring a meal, or just offer to visit and listen, you know? Right, and she stresses that when you're talking with your friend and listening to your friend, kind of repeat things back to to him or her so that she or he knows you're listening, you're actually taking it all in and that they're being heard. Yeah, and this is this also echoes what we've heard from Stuff Mom Never Told You listeners who have written and requesting this topic, sort of not only the need to be able to talk about it and sort of the isolation that they felt, but also how helpful it was in instances when they did have friends who acknowledged the loss and took it seriously and didn't just pat them on the head and say, oh, well, you'll get pregnant down the road, which statistically, yeah, the odds are definitely in your favor that that will happen, but that doesn't discount the immediate grief that you're experiencing. Right. And I mean, researching for this episode was educational for for me, definitely, because I mean, how many of us really know what to say or how to act or how to treat this? And so I think it's so important that we show through all of these studies that we cited that this this is a huge ordeal that families and women go through. And it is isolating. It is isolating because you have kind of a general attitude in the culture of like, meh, You'll, mm-hmm. you'll be fine. You'll, you'll totally be fine. You're not, you know, you're healthy. It's fine. Whereas a lot of these women feel, you know, no, it's not fine. I lost someone important to me. 
Yeah. So um, I, I know, like you said at the beginning of the podcast, Caroline, this was a sensitive topic to talk about. And I can imagine that for some people listening, it might have been a difficult one, an emotional one to listen to. But we just want to invite you to share with us. Um, you can email us, momstuffatdiscovery.com. Uh, you can tweet us at momstuffpodcast or share with the whole community of Stuff Mom Never Told You, listeners and viewers over on Facebook as well. Um, and we have a couple of messages to share with you, in fact, right now. So we've got a couple of letters here from listeners about our episode on cursing, swearing, F-bombs, and women. And this one comes from Jill, who writes, Hi guys, I was so excited when I saw you did a podcast on swearing, because it's honestly one of my favorite things to do. I know that sounds lame, but I feel such a release of stress whenever I throw F-bombs around. It just feels so freeing, and it's one of the best things about being an adult, not having to limit myself to vocabulary someone else has deemed fit. With that said, I always make sure I'm not in public when I do it, in case it upsets someone. It really shouldn't. They are just words, she writes in all caps. Thanks for the enlightening podcast. I effing love it. (laughs) Um, Well, I have a message here from Crystal. Um, She says, being a professional, or as professional as one can be in a line of work where you sometimes feel the need to scream out loud, insurance claims, I do feel that urge to curse out loud in the workplace every so often. Sometimes more than once a day, but I digress. I've heard people say that cursing as a lady makes you seem less educated, i.e. she couldn't find a better word in her vocabulary to express that point. I hold a bachelor's degree and would consider myself highly educated, but sometimes my old standbys such as fiddle-dee-dee or goodness simply won't cut it. I find myself letting an F-bomb slip out at times, and although I may not be the most pleased with it later, it just feels better. Thank you for offering an escape from my day-to-day stresses. You're welcome, Crystal, and I hope that us relieving you from some of your stresses means you dropped a, a, a couple fewer F-bombs at the <laughs> office. So thank you for writing in. And thanks to everybody who's written in to us. Momstuff at discovery.com is where you can email us, and you can also find all of our social media links, every single podcast, blog post, and video at stuffmomnevertoldyou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 